0: Weekend. Uh, My guess is that some of our folks are enjoying the weekend somewhere else today, and that's that's understandable. Actually, uh, for some of us, we're probably taking Monday off. You get a four-day weekend, which is pretty sweet. But thanks for being here. It's good to be together to worship this Sunday morning. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. We pray God blesses you as you worship with us this morning, Um, and. Certainly to all of our regular attenders and our members, uh, it's so good to be together. Uh, we are starting a series in the summer on the Psalms, taking a break from the book of Revelation, which we're going through, um, to just be in the Psalms a bit of the summer. Um, but today, actually, as I prayed about it, I was actually preparing to preach from one of the Psalms today. As I prayed about it and was preparing, I felt led, uh, I believe by God sense was that God was leading me to actually speak on something different today in light of the 4th of July. I don't know if I've ever done a 4th of July message before, perhaps once um, in in our history, my history as a pastor, but I felt led to do that today. Um, And I just trust that God wants to speak to us. Certainly anything we learn from His Word is profitable, right? So one way or the other, we know this is is God's very Word uh, contained in the Bible. so, we're going to take some time this morning to look at uh, the topic really of patriotism and Christianity. So, that's kind of the idea, but we're going to be right in a text and letting that text in Scripture drive the points and the application, and that is in Mark chapter 12. So, if you want to turn there, we'll be in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And this passage of Scripture, among others, helps us to understand as Americans, I believe, how to live in a world. Uh, where we're called to be Christians, but also uh, there's the practice of patriotism. And, and I and imagine for, for many of us, we wonder how does that work together? How do we do that? What does it look like? And there are many different ideas on that, but God's Word is fully competent to, to lead us. Uh, from Historically, actually, this has been a, a, an area of, I would say, some confusion in our country. There's a history. Uh, and it's understandable if you know our history from the very beginning, uh, of good amount of the very first settlers came here as believers. They came here hoping to establish Christian community, hoping to establish something uh, profound in terms of Christ's truth and mission. And so they came and they established governments, but right alongside establishing government, the, uh, the government, was this idea of being a distinctly Christian community. So right from the beginning, these things kind of got mixed together. And so it's understandable why at times we, we struggle to figure this out. What does it look like? Uh, actually, John Winthrop, uh, the, one of the first governors of Massachusetts, I think the first governor, uh, famously said in a message he gave right before he, they started Boston, said the following, I think we have this to put up, Says, It uh, and it's kind of old English, but I think you'll figure it out as we go along, "...we shall find that the God of Israel is among us. When ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when He shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, The Lord make it likely that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. That's from a message that he gave right before he started uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That quote of being a city on a hill actually has been reused again and again throughout our history. Um, Recent presidents have quoted from John Winthrop from this, this. Uh, message uh, given by him back in 1630. President Reagan, Bush, uh, President Obama. And as recently as the testimony by James Comey, the former director of the FBI, this City on the Hill quote has been used. And many churches this Sunday will follow suit in how they worship. They'll mix and create a a really fully patriotic worship service. Um, For some churches, that will include things like parading the American flag, up to the altar, a pledge of allegiance, singing uh, America the Beautiful or God Bless America, even the battle hymn of the Republic, followed by a sermon talking about uh, the country's Christian foundations and God given destiny. What should we do, King of Grace? How should we live as believers in light of it being July the 4th and this idea of patriotism? Should we do the same? Why? Or why not? Do we just jump into this mix, this blend of patriotism and and Christianity? How how should we think about these things and, and what should we do? I mean, that's a question, right? It's a question maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm looking forward to the answer right now. It's a real question. How do we do this? Well, God's Word is fully able to guide us. We're not left alone. This isn't just a philosophical issue that we somehow have to kind of figure out. God's Word gives us truth to help us understand these things and and help us as believers to live in our country as Christians. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 12 together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that Your Word is fully able to guide us and to teach us about this topic. And Lord, You care about how we live in our country. You care about all these truths. You care about how we live out our citizenship in america so thank you lord for your word thank you that you're fully able to guide us and now we pray speak to us and teach us help me lord god to clearly explain your word clearly proclaim it and to lead your precious people in the application as well of your word thank you god we know you are fully committed to your word and to helping us and so we ask these things in christ's name amen read with me mark chapter 12 starting verse 13. Jesus is in the temple grounds. This is near the end of His ministry, the final week. He's debating the leaders and it says in verse 13, "...and they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. And they came and said to Him, Teacher, we know that You are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesars. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. God's Word from Mark chapter 12. I want to take us through this fascinating interchange that Jesus has. I want to look at the question that's asked. I want to look at the answer that he gave, and then I want to help us think through some applications of this truth. So let's begin. First, the question. Jesus is in the temple grounds. This is His last week of ministry. He's cleared the temple at this point. He's caused quite a stir. And what's going on is they are bringing these questions to Him. They're they're basically seeking to trap Him. Jesus, at this point in time, is public enemy number one of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so they are seeking to trap Him with their questions, ultimately through that, they're hoping to destroy Him uh, in those questions. They want to be able to justify basically imprisoning Him and and ultimately executing Him. And Jesus has an answer really to every question. So it's a, a wonderful, fascinating read to read through His interchange with the leaders and all the different questions that are asked and all His answers. Each question demonstrates that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's no ordinary man. he is an extraordinary man, and even more he is God in the flesh. That's that we see that in his answers. they're just genius, they're, they're amazing genius answers. And this particular question comes from two antithetical parties, two parties, political parties that are really opposed to each other, but they are united in one thing at this point they're united in their desire to, to bring down Jesus. and so the enemy of my enemy is my friend is, is the truth here that's driving what they're doing. So they come together, these two very different parties, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, devoted to the Word of God, devoted to the law, devoted to their understanding of the Old Testament, which basically was a legalistic approach to God. They were very devout in this, and, and they are purists in a the sense. They want Israel to be all that they see Israel called to be in the Old Testament. So, they themselves are not on the side of wanting Roman rule. They're not wanting to pay taxes. Um, But they are not actively involved in opposing Roman rule. They're not leading a revolution at this point. But they are opposed to Roman rule. On the other side are the Herodians. The Herodians are people who are basically connected to Herod. King Herod, he was the the ruler of that area. He was not uh, a Jew. He was not devoted uh, to the things of God as as the core of His being. Um, And so they were people that were favorable to the Romans. They basically were in power because of the Romans. So they wanted to follow Roman rule. So these two parties who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum of the time come together to trap Jesus. And they start with this extensive flattery about who Jesus is, hoping with that and this almost poetic description of how great He is to somehow snare Him to being forced to answer uh, their question to preserve this reputation that they're laying out and their flattery. Now Jesus sees through it all, doesn't He? He knows what's going on and he, he calls them out right away. Right? He, he knows what's going on and probably most people would understand as well what's going on. He says, why, why put me to the test? And he could have said at that point, this is a hypocritical test. You, uh, you, you guys are hypocrites, you're flattering me, you know, and I'm not going to play the game, just walked away. He could have done that. But he's a genius. He's God in the flesh, right? Infinite intellect and goodness. And He cares about us here today, so He wants this answer to be preserved for us. He wants this answer to stand as truth for the whole church throughout all time. He wants to demonstrate that that no question, no matter how thorny and complicated it might be, is greater than the One who is the ultimate answer. And so, they set the trap. He springs the trap. He answers the question. He walks into the trap knowing what they're doing, but knowing that He is going to spring that trap and bring an answer that's going to have profound effect on His people. But this was a truly tricky answer. Very tricky. He had dangers on either side. This was a question that actually split the nation. This was a question that caused bloodshed. You had powerful political parties on either side. Not only the Herodians and the Pharisees, but connected to the Pharisees, but more extreme than the Pharisees, were the Zealots. The Zealots were a, a people who had the same views more or less of the Pharisees. They wanted God's reign and rule, but they were willing to shed blood for it. They were willing to, to fight the Romans. Now historically, ultimately, that party won over and there was a great battle and a number of battles and, and the result of it was that they lost. Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed. But on that side were the Zealots who who opposed Roman rule. And in in many ways, their thinking was correct in, in many ways, not in every way. Because they knew their Old Testament. They knew that Israel was called as a special nation. They were called as a people. To belong to God. To be in covenant with God through the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. This wonderful promise of grace that all who believe are counted righteous and belong to the Lord. And then this covenant of living under God's law and loving response. So they were covenant people who were called to live under Him by His Word in the the Old Testament. That included being under His chosen King and being free from foreign intervention. And living under the, the leadership of the priesthood and the prophets as well. So there was this glorious picture in the Old Testament of what they were called to. So so they read their Bibles and they thought to have a foreign king, one like Caesar, who cares nothing for the true God, is an abomination. So their thinking was right in, in many ways. But they didn't understand all that God was doing in history. They didn't understand the implications of the exile that had gone on. Really, since the exile, The people of God breaking the covenant were removed from the land. And they were never again to have an earthly ruler over them in in the right and full way. But these parties longed for that. And and that longing in many ways was right and true. For the picture of the people of God in the Old Testament is is ultimately fulfilled in God's long-term plans. That's another message. But the zealots and the Pharisees were were in that place of, of... wanting to have independent rule to rid themselves of the Romans. On the other hand were the Herodians and the Sadducees as well. The the party that really was represented by all the priests who were there in power because of the Romans. So they bring this question. And there seems to be no way out. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the danger here was if He said it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees and the zealots and many of his countrymen would be, no, that's terrible. You're, you're compromising. You're compromising what we're called to. We're called to, to be a special nation. To have our own king. You're compromising. If he said, no, we shouldn't pay them, the other party would say, you are treasonous and you're going to bring the wrath of Rome against us. There seemed to be no way out. And this... Tricky question. It was quite a trap. It's a really tough political question. Really thorny. You know guys, we often find ourselves in similar quandaries, don't we? We live in a country where there are some thorny questions out there. And we see parties on the left and the right asking things and promoting things, and the answers aren't always easy. It can be convenient to simply side with one party or another. But I'm not sure if that's always wise. Certainly in Christ's case, it was not the path He chose. We face tough questions ourselves. We face similar quandaries. And I think it's only get, going to get worse as our country gets more and more polarized. We don't, I don't know where that's going to go. But we find ourselves as Christians, and I would, I would submit that possibly in the future, it's going to be very difficult to find our home on either the left or the right as our country gets more polarized. So we face similar quandaries and this part of Scripture is so helpful for us. It's so helpful to see that this thorny question was not a problem for Jesus. This is no ordinary man. This is God the Son. This is God in the flesh. Infinite genius. Perfect, limitless intellect. Perfect holiness and full power, wisdom and strength, full of mercy and grace, all the glory of God and the fullness of God as a man. And he comes in the midst of this political turmoil and is asked this incredibly complex question and it's no problem for him. These guys, are actually I, I feel sorry for them in some ways. They think, well, we got the question. We're here. We're going to win this thing. They have no idea what they're up against. It actually made me think of Vizzini and the Princess Bride. You guys know the story. Some of you are Princess Bride. You know Vizini. Vizini puts the Spanish swordsman Inigo and the giant Fezzik in his own genius, supposedly better than Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Morons, as he says. Thinking that he can defeat Wesley. He has no idea what he's up against. We do, as we watch the movie. And ultimately, we know Wesley wins. Well, these Jewish leaders have no idea what they're up against. They have no idea who they're talking to, really. They think they can trap this ragtag rabbi from Galilee not knowing that He's God Himself. The I Am Himself in their midst. And this is so helpful for us here today. Because we find ourselves in similar situations, we will at times as, as American citizens, Christian citizens. Faced with questions and and maybe our own questions, wondering what to do. Struggling how to live out our faith. Thinking that, boy, there's complex questions being thrown thrown at us. We have no answer for them. But we have Christ. And He is fully able. He is fully competent. And I think sometimes, guys, what can happen, I don't know, this happens to me at times, we can feel like, you know, that I just don't have an answer and I don't know what to do. We can feel just weak and pathetic and... Unable to say anything. And I think that's what the enemy would seek to do at times just to make us feel impotent in terms of the political turmoil around us. But we have Christ. And we have His truth. We have the One who has the answers. We have the One to whom we can look. We can trust in Him. We can look to Him. We can look to Jesus who is able to guide and lead us. Now, I'm not saying that that somehow He's going to dictate to you, you know, words from heaven that will help you have the perfect re- reply to political questions. But one way or the other, He will answer you and He will guide you. He will guide us as we look to Him. Because He fully knows and He fully has an answer. And this story gives us confidence living in this world full of political turmoil to know that He has overcome. He has answers. He is competent the one thing I think it teaches us is we are to look to Jesus first and foremost. We're not to look to policies and statements of any political parties first and foremost. No matter how good they might seem. No matter how brilliant and, and coherent they might appear. We must look to the ultimate political genius, Jesus Christ, above all others. That is one lesson I believe that we draw from this interaction. Put our faith in Jesus above all and any others. The answer that Jesus gives here is really fantastic though. So let's dig into that a little bit. They're trying to entrap Him. He calls them on it. And then He asks them for a coin. He asks them if He can see one of the coins they use to pay the tax. Now, that actually asking for the coin is a a point. One of His answers. It's an aspect of the answer. Uh, that He's bringing. He asks them to show the coin. And and by basically by them admitting that they have one of these coins, they are actually answering a, a part of what He wants to say. It's a tacit admission that they had received economic benefit from the reign of Caesar. That's what's going on. So the fact that they have these coins shows that they had received benefit, economic benefit, and the benefit of governance from the Roman government. It's a, it's a tacit admission of that. So, so it's a quiet admission. They're not explicitly saying it, but it's implied, of course, that they have this coin. And that they hold in this coin something that represents the benefits of the Roman government. Now we know the history of, of the Roman government. We know that it, it was full of abuses, there were all sorts of things that were wrong. But also, along with this Roman government came many real good benefits a stable economy, relatively stable economy nearly worldwide peace, a fairly reasonable justice system, trade across the vast expanses of the empire, um, the ability to limit crime and corruption, common languages, combined learning, all these things were brought to them through the Roman Empire. And so that coin represented those things. And they were admitting by bringing out the coin. They were the ones who had it. Somebody had it in their satchel. I don't think they had pockets back then. Or satchel bringing out that coin, they were admitting that we've received benefit, we use the coins, and all these things come with that coin. So, that's part of the answer in, in the interchange. We, yes, we have benefited from the Roman government, so they're trying to pin him, right? Should we pay taxes or not? And since he's turning on them, you're the hypocrite, you got the coin in your pocket. You're asking me the question whether I should pay taxes with this? You guys use these coins. You're already engaged, involved in the Roman government. His next point is to ask whose image and inscription are on the coin. So we have a picture there. Good. We have a picture of the coin. And there's on one side, the head side, is the head of Tiberius Caesar. And then written around his face is an abbreviated Latin phrase that says, uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Uh, So it's all abbreviated, but it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Yes, you got it right. The divine Augustus. And then on the other side, it says, uh, uh, Pontif Maxim, which means uh, high priest, so it's calling, it in the inscription, it's saying that this guy is divine. That he's a religious figure. So just think that this is, this is the people of Israel who worship the only true God. And yet, for some of them, they're carrying around in their pocket a coin that has a, a man saying he's God. They knew that. They knew that what it said. And it was actually forbidden to use the coin in, in the temple area. They had to exchange the coin for... Uh, nondescript coins, copper coins, that didn't say anything like this. Didn't say anything about Caesar. Didn't have the image of Caesar. So this would have been a, a false image. And then to say it's divine as well would have been blasphemy. So they didn't use this coin. They were forbidden from using it. Jesus doesn't necessarily get at His claims to divinity directly. He doesn't address that here. That is addressed elsewhere, but He's not going after that necessarily. But it was a blatant... Image on the coin, and yet they still, some of them still use the coin and and derived benefits from it. But he says to them, he asks them, um, whose image is there? And it's the image of Caesar, obviously, right? We know that it's Caesar's image. And so they are basically saying in that answer that this coin belongs to Caesar. You're using something that belongs to Caesar. These coins. Belonged to Caesar himself. Now, we don't do coins like that, right? Our coins actually don't belong, you know, your, your coin doesn't belong to George Washington or something. It belongs to the government as a whole. But they would have looked to Caesar as the head of the government. So the coin was actually Caesar's coin. And so Jesus responds to them with his famous, fairly well known statement render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So you've got a coin, and it's Caesar's coin. Give it to Caesar. Render it to Caesar. That's his answer. Uh, it's interesting that he uses the word there, render. Um, they've asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, these are Pharisees and Herodians. So when they say lawful, they don't mean like legal like we would think of. Like get a lawyer, or one of our lawyers, civil law. They're thinking spiritual uh, law, church law, uh, religious law. Is it lawful? Is it lawful before God? That's what they're they're saying. Is it lawful to pay taxes? And and the word "pay" is different. So it's to render. It's not to render. It's to give honor to Caesar. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Is it lawful to to basically honor Caesar in a way that they would struggle with? That's what the way they phrase it. Jesus uses a different word, as recorded in Greek here. The word is "render." Original language in Greek, us in English. Render. And render is different. The idea of render is you're repaying. That's the word. So repay would be another way you could translate. So repay to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Does kind of the flow of the idea make sense to you? I think it's really important to get this. So they have received coins from Caesar, right? They've received these coins. They've been in trade and so forth. They've benefited from Caesar's rule. And so, having the coins is, is evidence that they have benefited. They've participated in the economy under the Roman government. They've participated with the Roman government. The protection they bring, providing for the economy, all that comes with it, all those things I mentioned. So they've received these coins, and they're, they're in their well, not their pockets, whatever they have. Um, I don't know how they did life without pockets, though. I like having pockets. But anyhow, they, they have on their persons these, these coins. So they've received something from Caesar. So so Jesus says, pay it back. Give it back appropriately. Render to Him the things you've already received from Him. In part. That is where the genius is here. And that is where the key truth is for us. Remember, we started with addressing the whole idea of patriotism and Christianity. We're going to get into applications. But this is the core of the answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That coin obviously came from Caesar, so pay it back in the amount that He asks you to. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus isn't saying that you know, Caesar rules over the Roman Empire, and then everything outside that territory is where God rules, right? And so, you've got two rulers going on here. There's Caesar and then there's God. And so, you know, render to them kind of as parallels. He's not saying that. Now, He doesn't make that explicitly clear here, but the rest of Scripture, the testimony of Scripture, we know that God rules over all things, right? He rules over all things. Everything is under God. He rules ultimately. But under His rule, under His realm, is the realm of Caesar that He oversees. Caesar has legitimate, a legitimate rule under God. And under that rule, there's a rendering. There's a receiving and a rendering that's to take place. So in some sense, he's saying live for the glory of God, honor the emperor. That's how we could sum it up. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. This idea elsewhere in Scripture, Romans chapter 13, we have this to project. It's also in 1 Peter. Paul, the apostle Paul is teaching, and I would imagine Paul got this whole teaching really out of what Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 12, and he expounds on it with apostolic authority, and we know by the Holy Spirit is the very words of God preserved for us. It says in Romans 13, 1 7, profound application, really, of what we're talking about. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Very important. Get that. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Wow, what a phrase. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's quite a passage. And it's really, like I said, just an application of what we're already looking at. And it's amazing to think This is in the book of Romans, right? And the book of Romans was written to whom? The Romans. Good. Not a trick question. (laughs) The Romans. And they lived in what empire? Rome. Right. And we know again the history of Rome. There were terrible things that went on in Rome. This was not a government that was right in every way. This was not a government free of scandal. This was a government actually that at times did some brutal things. And even did things regularly that were brutal. It was a government that supported not only capital punishment, but cruel, inhumane, horrific capital punishment. Crucifixion was a regular part of Roman society. They threw Christians to the lions repeatedly and things like that. They traded slaves. And there were all sorts of other things that they did that were were terrible abuses. Yet Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Wow, that presses us, doesn't it? If he could be saying that about Caesar, then certainly for us, we need to do the same. But he he grounds this also in the the blessings, the, the blessings that government brings under God. In Romans 13, we see God over it. God has instituted Caesar. God is in control that Caesar is on the throne and His intention is to bring order and blessing through Caesar. And so, we respect Caesar and honor Caesar appropriately because God has the one who's put him there. Ultimately, that's what Romans 13 is teaching us. And as I've been saying, it comes out of Jesus' teaching, I believe. Jesus' brilliant answer. Teaches us that God is over political govern, governors. He is in charge of these things for our good. And we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In this teaching, Jesus is clearly signaling what the Zealots and the Pharisees were missing that there's been a transition, that national Israel in covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, has transitioned, that God is doing something certainly seeking to reach ethnic Israel, but the whole world. That His kingdom now is operating differently in this time period. That since really the exile, until Christ Himself returns, there will be no theocracy. There will be no theocracy. There will be no more wedding together of the reign of God and the political reign. Since the exile, when they were exiled and lost that, until Christ returns. That now in this time period, in this span of time, certainly since Christ has come and is now ascended and reigning, until He returns, there's no theocracy. There are Caesars who will rule over people. And to be a Christian now is to live as a dual citizen really. You are under the reign of God. He's reigning over the church. He's reigning over the world. He's reigning over all things. We are ultimately citizens of heaven who belong to Him and His kingdom. But we live under different uh, countries, political entities, and different citizenships on the earth. And that's the reality now. Jesus signals that with His teaching. Makes it clear. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand that we live under God's reign, but we also live under the reign of Caesar. And that's going to look differently at different times. But there's no design for a theocracy. Now that doesn't mean that as Christian citizens, we don't have things to say about the reign of Caesar. We don't have ways to participate in that reign. I'm not saying uh, what some parts of the church would say. It means totally withdraw from the political scene. Have nothing to do with Caesar at all. I mean, pay your taxes, but nothing more. I don't think that's what's taught here. But to understand you are first a Christian citizen, and then you are under Caesar as well. And you are live under that, and you are to participate as a Christian citizen. That's what's being taught here, and that is so important to understand. If we don't get this, we're going we're to err. We're going to wander. We're going to seek to create theocracies. We're going to vote differently, I think. We're going to even vote thinking we want, we want a Jesus-like figure in office. Now, we want the most capable people to lead us. I'm not saying that we don't. But we can't confuse the two. We have to understand that God is sovereign and there are Caesars that reign. And they're going to look different. They're not going to be Jesus. We're not seeking to bring the full reign of God in our voting habits. It's not achievable. Again, that doesn't mean don't look for good, godly qualities in your leaders, but don't make them Jesus. They're going to be Caesar, no matter how good they are. No matter how Christian they are. We could take time, I won't now, just to go through different Christian leaders. And the things they did that were good, and the things that they did that weren't good. They're all imperfect. None of them are Jesus. And we can err if we're looking to make them Jesus. We can vote for someone because we think this will be like Jesus. When it might be a non-Christian, even an a anti-Christian person who will be the most effective Caesar in our time period. I don't want to be simplistic in my answers, but I just want to push us a little bit to think through what Jesus is saying and the implications for us. But we live as dual citizens in the time period. We live as citizens of heaven and citizens of this earth, just as we can be dual citizens of countries. Right? You can be a dual citizen of, of the United States and, and just about any other country in the world. I know for me, I, I looked at the possibility of being a dual Irish citizen as well as an American citizen. Now, I treasure my American citizenship, don't get me wrong. But I can be a dual citizen. I, I don't know, are there any dual citizens with us? There are probably a few of us, Yep, yeah? Dual citizens, so uh, Britain, And the Dominican Republic, you can be dual citizens with with those countries as well. So, we can live as dual citizens. And as Christians, we do live as dual citizens. And we need to understand that. So do you understand that? That you are a dual citizen? You have the first and foremost obligation to heaven, but you also have an obligation to Caesar. It includes paying taxes. It, It includes things like participating in local politics. Being a good citizen in town, state, and federal politics. It includes serving your country. To render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is not just simply the coin that you pay. It's it's on many levels. And so our country allows its citizens to serve in the military. I think that that is a great way to render to Caesar what is Caesar's appropriately. And many in our midst have served our country heroically. I think it means that you can celebrate the 4th of July. I'm going to celebrate it. We're actually having a party. We invite everyone to come over to celebrate it. It's not a church sanctioned party, by the way, so we're not having to confuse these things, but it is a party that we've invited the church to. Um, we're going to celebrate the 4th of July there. You can wear red, white, and blue. But the church is not in that saying somehow American citizenship is on parallel with heavenly citizenship. But we can celebrate. We can honor those who have served in, in the military. We can honor those who serve in government. I, before I was a pastor, I worked for the U.S. Army. We can do all these things without making patriotism our citizenship high, and a higher ideal than the worship of God. Rendering to Caesar is an important principle that should shape our understanding of patriotism and our participation in government. Let me, in the final section, in the two minutes I have left, which I... Going to have to go over just a little bit, but just let me talk a little bit about some other applications so that we can think through this as well. The first, the, mo- the greatest application, actually, by the way, I want us to make in this is not so much uh, how we think through patriotism and Christianity. I want us to think through that. But the, the biggest application is Jesus is amazing, <laughs> Jesus has the answers. And this isn't the only difficult question that comes to Jesus. There's a difficult question actually that was there before time began that Jesus came to answer. It was this, how can a holy God, perfect in every way, totally good without fault, how can a perfectly holy God who cannot tolerate any sin, any evil at all, how can this holy God love sinful people? He's loved His people from before time began with an infinite love. As great as His love, the intertrinitarian love. The love for the Son. The Son for the Father. For the Holy Spirit. That's what we learn in John 17. So He loves us and He wants us to be with Him. And yet He's holy. He cannot tolerate sin. So how can He love sinful people so much to draw them into His presence yet still be holy and good? That is the biggest quandary there ever is. Ever has been. His holiness and His mercy His love. Jesus has come to answer that question. And He solves that paradox, He solves that quandary by going to the cross in our stead. Bearing the penalty, the just penalty for our sin on the cross. Dying. Suffering the justice of God, the holy wrath of God on that cross. Bearing that sin, paying for it fully, and offering up His perfect life in our stead as well. So that simply through faith, the faith that's born of His love and given as a gift, as we receive that faith and put it in Christ, we are forgiven, all of our sins are put away. We are accepted by Him. And now we can live in the fullness of His love. That's the greatest question ever answered by Jesus. Reconciling His holiness and love together on the cross and through His resurrection. And that's the first application that I want us to, to retain from this time. But we can take this truth that our Savior, our glorious, amazing Savior, gives to us and apply to all sorts of, of realms as we walk through the, this idea of how to live as an American and a Christian. I think it teaches us that, that we can understand that, that each one, each, our citizenship and our governance, government has a rightful place. Each has, in a sense, the church and the government has a sphere that they're in charge of. And they're somewhat separate. That there is a separation of church and state that's appropriate. Now, it's a two-way street, I believe. Often it becomes a one-way street. So the church is told not to come into the state. But then the state goes into the church at times. But we, are, we can live under an appropriate separation of church and state. We can understand how, to, how these operate alongside each other. We can render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. That is why, by the way, we don't have a patriotic July 4th worship service. That's why we don't parade the flag down the middle and sing Battle Hymn of the Republic and pledge allegiance. Now I do all those things. But not as your senior pastor as a church as a whole. We're to render to God what is God's. But, it, but, but mixing the two, blending together our worship of God with our patriotism is not appropriate and confusing. It's mixing our citizenship in a way that they're not meant to mix. We don't want to confuse people thinking that to be a Christian means to be a patriotic American. No, it isn't. To be a Christian Here means to worship the Lord in all things and to operate in our citizenship appropriately, but within its proper sphere. And so we do that. We separate those two. We separate how we, uh, for me and our pastoral team, how we comment on political issues. We don't endorse political parties. We don't seek to persuade you to vote for one candidate versus another. But we do not hesitate to talk about moral issues. I'd encourage you to think through how you vote and, and what parties you might belong to or not. And to think through as a Christian and to be able to separate the difference between being a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the U.S. Let me give you an example. Oh, the Affordable Care Act in Obamacare, right? We all are involved with that, aren't we? How do you think about that in light of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's? Let me propose how we do that. As a Christian there are aspects of that law that are questionable. There's uh, in that law a, a provision for abortion. Now, biblically, we understand abortion is murder, that life begins at conception, therefore uh, ending the life of, of a baby in the womb would be murder. So as Christians, we're not to participate in that. Now, there's grace and forgiveness for us. Thank God, isn't there? And we know that the reality that we live in for many of us, that. We've been involved one way or the other in abortions. There's forgiveness, so thank God for that. But we're not to promote it as believers. And so there's a place in that where I think it's very clear we're not to be part of this. And and Christians have actually appealed this aspect of the law. So the Hobby Lobby you took it all the way to the Supreme Court, right? And there was a ruling given. That was a wise, a wise ruling. And I think that was the right thing they did in that. I'm grateful for it. But there are other aspects of the Affordable Care Act that are not blatantly wrong or necessarily right as Christians. There are Christians who disagree on these things, actually. There are some Christians who would say this is a wonderful way to live out our call to care for the poor. And so they would understand that this is a good thing and be for it. I think we are called to that principle, but the application isn't necessary. So if you are from that camp, understand that you need to distinguish the two. If you are on the other side thinking, wow, big government always leads to repression of the church, so the the smaller government, the better, understand that that's not necessarily a biblical principle, that's a wisdom principle. And so if you're on that side, distinguish your citizenship from your citizenship in heaven. I think we can apply that to many things in our politics. Just understanding that we render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. We separate these things appropriately. Appropriately and not to combine them. This is a mistake that the country has made in the past. We have tied our Christianity to political causes. It started right in the beginning as I read from John Winthrop. It went on during the Revolutionary War. Actually, Mark noll I won't read the quote, but Mark Noll, a Christian historian, uh, says that uh, the cause of the great moral decline, so after the Revolution was one of the darkest times in our spiritual history as a country. Uh, Some would say even darker than now. It was a dark time. Mark Knowles says it's because the revolution had such momentum it combined for all the Christians, their patriotism and their Christianity. There were actually pastors who were excluded from the pulpit because they weren't patriotic enough after the revolution. So they were so married together that it actually hurt the church. And what he says is the decline of the church came from the wedding together of patriotism and Christianity making Basically, blurring those lines, making them one. So let us be wise in how we think through those things. There are many other applications as well. I hope the principle is clear for you that we ought to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Perhaps today and this weekend, that just means that you're okay with us not having the flag and not singing the battle hymn of the Republic, but you're going to go out and celebrate the fourth. And you understand how to do that. That you can render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's in the, into God the things that are God's. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to help us live in light of these things to walk out this truth together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've given us truth. You've not left us alone to try to figure out how to be Christian citizens. How to be both members of Your Kingdom and members of this country. Give us wisdom, Lord, how to walk it out. Give us humility. Clear up any misunderstandings. And lead us, Lord. We pray as, as Mike prayed and taught from Jeremiah, Lord, that we would be a blessing to our country in how we live. We would be the very best citizens as we love our country, as we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as we repay In different ways, the benefits we've received. But ultimately, Lord, living for Your glory. For that ultimate kingdom that will never end. We thank You so much and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.